Hey everybody, this is Pastor Todd, and you're listening to the Grace Community Church Sermon Podcast. Amen. Let's have a hand for this worship team as we're seated. Go ahead and grab your seat. God bless you as you do. As uh, Uncle Chris, as my family calls him, joins me here on stage to take the pulpit today, let me just say two things. One, when I heard soundcheck this morning, I was very upset that I did not get to preach. I guess I'll say three things. Two, please give him everything you've got as you listen. He is, uh, for me, a top five preacher. I've been listening to him preach for 20 years. And every time he preaches, I learn something new. We've shared ministry for 20 years. That means, one, we're really old. And two, it means that we have a bit of staying power. So those of you who are young and are watching, pay attention to him. And those of you who are here in this room, open up your hearts to receive. And the third thing is, next week, Grace North, 11 a.m. If you've been watching and the 9 a.m. start has been difficult for you, we'll be pleased to welcome you to Grace North next Sunday, 11 a.m. That service will feature video worship, so we'll get to watch one or two of the songs from this week, and then I will preach live. So next week, 11 a.m. up north, we'd love to see you there. Please uh, welcome my friend Chris to the pulpit. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. We were just saying how it's a little bit cooler than it was when I was standing up here in the summer, in the evening, sweating through whatever it was that I was wearing. Um... I don't want to do a lot of preface on this sermon, but I just want to say, um, just to kind of set it to the stage for you, that this has been, uh, I've, I've wept through writing this the whole week, right from last Sunday, and I'm feeling actually rather inadequate uh, to, to share this with us, because... Um, you know, those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And so I want to acknowledge right out, of the, right out of the gate that this is a word to me. I think this is a word to us. I think it's a word to the people of God. And at one level, it's an encouraging word. At another level, it's a pretty challenging word. I know I am extremely challenged uh, this week. So, um, so Lord, would you come with your Holy Spirit? Would you bless uh, those thoughts in our minds? Would you bless the words of my mouth, would you be glorified? And Father, would you change us to be more like your son? Jesus' name. I might, as a result, read a little more than I want to, because I'm (laughs) blurry-eyed. Firsts are important, aren't they? First things, first dates, first kisses, first loves, first cars, maybe, for some of us. Um, (laughs) First jobs. Um... And so they have a, a kind of a power to them. They, they set up the stage. They, they're important because they share the things that we believe are important about our worldview. Whenever someone says first, we, we, we want to prick our ears up. I think it's really important about how, how we tell the story of um, the kingdom is what we tell first. If we start the story of the kingdom with the fall and the apple rather than with communion and walking in the garden, then we get a completely different perspective. And so how we, what we start with first is pretty important. So the first story post-garden 
is a story that's the same in, in all three Abrahamic um, faiths. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And the story goes, you probably know it, but the story goes like this, that they both offered sacrifices uh, to God, and God found one acceptable and one not. And what's interesting is that if you dig into that, that scripture, at that point, at the point that God finds Cain's offering unacceptable, he actually encourages Cain. He actually says to him, look at, like you can almost hear a father, interesting, gathering his son saying, it's okay, if you change your heart and you offer to me, I, I will be pleased to accept your sacrifice. That's the exhortation of God to Cain. We kind of have this sense that, that at least I did, that you know, Cain made some sort of bad um, offering, and as a result, God was just right pissed with him. But that's not the sense I get from the text. The sense is that he says, hey, you know, Abel, thank you, I've received your gift. And Cain, you know, this time, you're, 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 you're distracted. You're facing different ways. You're, you're not focused on me. Next time, bring your offering with your heart. Well, that's a chastisement that we all need, isn't it? That's not just Cain. That's, that's all of us. And so he says this to Cain, and Cain uh, burns with anger, and he commits the first murder. And God comes to Cain, and he asks him a question. And I think that's pretty interesting, too. That's the first thing God ever does when we sin is asks a question. I'm not very good at that. Catherine will tell you. When my kids um, disobeyed me for some reason, I, I don't usually ask questions. I blow up with some sort of, you did this and I can't believe that you would. God doesn't do that, fortunately. When we eat from the apple, God comes and he asks a question. Where are you? And when Cain murders his brother, he comes and he asks a question. Where is your brother? It's kind of like as if it is, it's trying to engender dialogue. I mean, Abel's death is not too big for God. God could have said, yeah, I'm just going to raise Abel up again. Mistake, Cain. Don't do that. Okay? Stop there. If Cain had fallen on his face before God and said, I, I, jealousy got the better of me. I repent. I, I, I heard your challenge to me about my offering and I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it and I murdered him and I, I fall and, and, and just plead for my life. Who knows what the story might have gone? But he doesn't. He asks the question of God, am I my brother's keeper? In, in the Hebrew, the order of the words is very Yoda-like. Keeper of my brother, am I? <laughs> There's the, it's amazing that you could have the audacity to stand before God after having murdered your brother and say, I don't know, am I supposed to be looking after him? How you answer this question makes a significant difference in your worldview and your sense of justice and how you are meant to follow Jesus with your feet on the ground that cries out with Abel's blood. I, I am convinced more than ever, the last few years have, have had me in this verse. Uh, I actually tell it as a parable to all of my grade 12 English students because I say how you respond to this changes the way you are in the world. And if it's true for them, it's 100% it's true for the people of God. 
how you respond. I'm more convinced that the entire scripture, parable after parable, letter after letter, song after song, is asking us the question, are you your brother's keeper? How will you answer that? And I think the resounding clarion call from heaven in everything that is in the scripture and everything the Holy Spirit whispers to us in our heart is yes. Yes, you are. You are your sister's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. That's the point. You are their keeper because I am keeps you. We keep because we've been kept. We reach out to everyone that, that we interact with and, and keep them and take responsibility for them. Not out of sympathy, but because they are us and we are them and God keeps us. The land acts interestingly in this, in this bit. God's, uh, God says to Cain that the blood of Abel cries out from the land. That the earth is a witness, essentially, to our lack of keeping, to our injustice. It kind of brings to mind the comment uh, from the writer of Romans where he says that man is without excuse because all of creation makes known God's invisible qualities. And in fact, if I, just for a second, if you go a few verses before our verse for today, verse 6, if you look at chapter 6, verse 1 in Micah, you hear this, hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the, of the earth. The earth is acting as, as, a, as a witness, as a testimony to our injustice. In the West, we can feel like we're getting away with injustice. We're not keeping people very well. And so we can kind of feel like we're getting away with it. Do you remember actually the scripture that, that I had in the summer asked that question? How long will we get away with it? And right from Genesis 3, 4, the land acts as this witness that stands and says, no, I, I will be the witness against, for the injustice that God's people are perpetrating. I will be the witness. It makes me think, too, of our current climate crisis in the world and the lack of care that we've had for the land. The land says, I, I will be the witness. So the land, as we, as we come into this chapter, it stands as a witness and a testimony to the injustice that Micah is challenging in God's people and in us. Our text for today is about how to live. It's about how to live. And this is poignant for us in the West because... I've been noodling with this idea for the last little while, but our injustice, the result of our injustice, sometimes doesn't fall on us. That's the privilege of living where we live. The luck of it, if you will. When I buy chocolate that isn't slave-free, 
The consequence of that does not fall on me. It falls on a 14-year-old kid in Cote d'Ivoire. That's who it falls on. And so there's an important need for a witness. Someone who's not me to say, no, there's a result of Jones's injustice. I, the land, will stand because I see that kid. So this is important for us in the West. It's important. And I think what Micah says to us through these three verses is that there is no right relationship with God without right relationship with man. It's impossible. There is no right relationship with God apart from right relationship with man. There is no justice with God apart from justice with man. Now, there's a need for us to remember right here who Micah is talking to. So Micah is talking to the people of God and he makes that abundantly clear in the next few verses leading into our section for today. He reminds them all sorts of things. Oh, my people. What have I done to you? He, they are his people. We are his people. So it's really important, and you've heard me say this before, and I don't think I ever want to preach without reminding us of it. Probably because I'm an Enneagram 3, which may mean something to some of you. And it means that my kind of world space, the personality that I inhabit, kind of believes that you wouldn't like me unless I can do something for you. And, and that idea kind of fills me with shame most of the time. So I'm constantly trying to do something to get you to like me, including God trying to do something to get God to like me. That has been the story of my journey of faith for, for my whole life. And the recognition that just overwhelms me daily is there is nothing I can do to earn that love of God. That I am good and I am accepted and I am loved just for who I am if I bring nothing to the table. So as I, as I reiterated in the summer, or as I said in the summer, I want to reiterate right now, it's important as we, as we engage this challenge from Micah that we remember that should we choose to ignore it, God still accepts us. Should we choose to walk away from the Holy Spirit's challenge to us this morning? He still loves you. He will still keep you, whether you keep others. Because that's what God is like. That's who he is. So we can never walk into a challenge from any prophet without first recognizing that the place that we stand is so favored. It's so incredibly favored. So we need to remind ourselves of that because the only person really that Jesus really hammered at in the Gospels was those people who made barriers to receiving that. Not people who failed. Not people who made mistakes. Not people who sinned. People who made barriers to receiving the fact that there is nothing that you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. So that's where we stand as we, as we enter this space. So if we want to keep with the, the theme of best life ever, we think this morning of the best life ever by not trying harder to be religious. We need to add that religious part. That's not going to get us closer to the Lord ever. So it's with that that we jump into Micah's challenge. I'm going to read it to you. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Verse 8 is, of course, the crux of the whole passage. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's make some observations about this verse. First of all, all three of them are in relationship to people. None of them can be accomplished in solitary. One can't do that. It's, it's, a, it's an impossibility. They cannot be executed in a solitary way. And in the past, we have interpreted this scripture to kind of be a paraphrase or a recall of the great commandments and commission to love God and to love people. And I think that's true, to love people and justice and being kindness and to walk humbly with God, to love God. And it's undoubtedly true that that meaning is there. However, the more that I've sat with this verse over this week, I think all three instructions are the same. Remember, this is a prophetic book. It's meant to kind of smack you a bit. Some people actually think that, some, some scholars think that bits of Micah are missing. I'm not sure that that's that I, what I think about that. I certainly have no education in that. But the reason that they think that is because rhetorically, are these, it feels a little bit jagged. It doesn't have the same kind of arc that, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah has. It kind of feels like a little bit like you're in a punching bag or something. And, and there's these moments and, and there's kind of not a whole lot of transitions between them. And so that might be true, I'm not sure, but the point is that as a prophetic book, it should shake us. It should waken us up. It's probably not surprising that I've been in tears all week. That's what a prophetic book is supposed to do. And so, as such, I will grant you that yes, there is that love God, love people element to this, but I think the challenge Micah is giving to us is that all three are the same. In this context, some of the rabbis who wrote in the Talmud understand walk humbly with your God to be focused more on the walking. Where is he going? What is he doing? God is always searching and seeking. He is always a father to the fatherless. He is always a defender of widows. If we want true understanding of what path God is walking we need to look no further than Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Walking humbly with our God certainly means loving him, but also, and perhaps most particularly for Micah, it means walking with him, 
walking to the cross. Greater love hath no one that he lays down his life for his fellow man. Rabbi Elazar, in, in the, the section of the Talmud that I have been reading, actually says that walking humbly with God has two very practical examples in Jewish culture. And he gives them to, to you to, to actually get a picture of what this might look like. Here are his two images. When someone dies who is poor, there is no one to bury them. They have no family, they have no money, they have no will to say, do such and so and buy this plot of land. And his encouragement when asked, what does it mean to walk humbly with our God, is to bury that person, to walk with that person, to take that body that no one has ownership of or love for, and to bury that person. There's no fanfare in that. No family to pat you on the back and say thanks for stepping in. The second example that he gives, and this is so sweet, is to accompany a poor bride to her wedding canopy. How Jesus is that? <laughs> to accompany a poor bride who has no father, no family, to bring her to the most important moment of her life. And the rabbi says, you want to know how to walk humbly with your God? Be that guy. Because what happens? Does anyone care what happens to the father of the bride after the bride is delivered to the tent? No, not at all. No one even remembers. Maybe he leaves. I am convinced, and I don't have time to explain why I'm convinced, but I'd love to talk with you about it. But I am convinced that the biblical idea of agape is justice. It is justice. This love that's so akin to justice, they can't be separated. And in fact, they are each other. The same is true of righteousness. Did you know the Greek word that is translated righteousness is also translated as justice? And the same is true in Hebrew. Tzedek. It's, it's both. You cannot take them apart. So Micah, I think, is telling us justice, kindness, Walking humbly with your God, it's the same thing. It is right relationship with man. If you want right relationship with God, get right relationship with man. So then why does Micah exhort us to do it humbly? I think, I, think, I hope that I've convinced you that these ideas are the same, but then there's this added piece to do it humbly. The preceding verses uh, give us a hint and provide us with an idea as to why Micah is pleading that we walk humbly. And the first hint we have is this reference to Balaam. So in 1 to 6, God uh, kind of sets it up. And he says to them this first part about the land that I've read to you. And then he says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? that you may know the righteous acts of Israel, of the Lord, to Israel. 
Uh, there's a lot going on here. And at one point, I was saying to Todd this morning, at one point, this, this was going to be a good three-day or sermon because there's a lot of things in here that I think we, we have misunderstood. I know I've misunderstood. Uh, typically, that idea of Shittim to Gilgal is the Lord's promise that he would bring them into the promised land. That's how it's interpreted. But the more that I have read and the more that I've thought about the overall context of this passage, it is also the place where they were, did evil in the sight of the Lord and injustice to each other. So maybe the memory that he's calling the Israelites to remember there is not, hey, I'm bringing you in, but remember what happened when you did not walk justly. So the first example that I want to do dig into a little bit is this idea of Balaam. Now, as a kid, I loved the story of Balaam. I got such a kick out of this story. It's such a crazy story. I love it. You, you may know it. Balaam is a, is a prophet. He's a seer. He's not an Israelite. He's just a dude who can see things. I'm not sure how that worked. That's kind of cool. I don't know if we still have them. That would be interesting. Um, but he's out there, and the uh, king of Moab, Balak, looks across the river and sees the hordes of Israel and says, they're like ants. They're going to come over and plunder us and kill us. I want to go get this guy who can see and, 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 and says what God says, and I want him to put a curse on the Israelites so that they don't cross over and kill us all. And so he sends some people to Balaam, and he does it in the same way that we might send people to someone that we wanted to do something for us. He butters them up. He says, oh, Balaam, you're so awesome. You know, like, would you come and bring us your wisdom? And Balaam says, hey, you know, I can't do anything but what God says. And he says, yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you gold and silver. I'll pay, you'll be so famous. You will be powerful and wealthy and famous if you come and do this for me. And Balaam says, no, I, I can't. I can't. If God says don't go, don't go, I can't go. And then there's this moment, and I don't know if this is a, a misprint. I think, we need to, I think we need to figure this out because the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me at this point. I always was a little cheesed with God at this point because God apparently says to him, okay, fine, Balaam, you can go. So Balaam gets up in the morning, he gets on his donkey, away he goes, and he's in this, this uh, pathway with stones on either side, and the donkey keeps whacking him into the stones, breaking his leg, you know, poof. And so he just is wailing on the donkey. And finally, after three times, the donkey turns around and talks to him. It's the best bit ever. And he's like, dude, what is your issue? And what I think is hilarious about the story is Balaam doesn't miss a beat in the rendering of it. He's like, well, you keep whacking me against the, the wall. Like, this is just a common occurrence that him and the donkey just have this conversation. And then the donkey says to him, well, listen, you numpty, there's a huge angel in the way, and I, would, I, I was gonna, I'm trying to save you, not kill you. And at that point, God opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel, and the angel says, God is cheesed with you that you are going. So something's confusing here. This is why I say there maybe is a misprint, because God, I thought God told him to go. Well, here's what I think is going on. In Balaam's heart, the wealth, the power, the opportunity to be important, to receive accolades in, in the dominant narrative of the land. The Moabites are huge. They're powerful. It's a king. He wants him to come. That he had succumbed to that in his heart. And that pride had overtaken him. And he was riding along in his donkey thinking to himself, I am kind of all that. I'm going to line my pockets with gold and silver because they need me. 
And God said, whoa, whoa, this is, hold on, I've seen this before. I've seen it in Cain. I've seen it before. This is not about pride. This is not about you. This is about what I am going to do. Well, the, the, the hint here, could it be that the greatest act of injustice is pride? Could it be that the greatest act of injustice is pride? Let me, let me give you some more convincing. The scripture that Micah writes says, Oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and how Balaam answered him. This is fundamentally a different instruction than just remember what happened to Balaam, which we've just been through, which is a great story and funny and maybe leads us down the right path. But it is fundamentally different. What did Balak devise? Balak devised to destroy the Israelites and obtain their destruction by sacrifice and the offering of wealth and power to Balaam. That's what happened when Balaam got to Balak. He sacrificed seven goats and seven sheep, and then Balaam did his little bit, and then he sacrificed a whole bunch of other stuff. This is what, how he was going to go about destruction of Israel. Has echoes of what we are just going to read in 6, 7, and 8, doesn't it? Balaam answers by prophesying about the Messiah. It's one of the first prophecies about the Messiah. Balaam answers him and says that this is what is going to happen. This is after he said, look, I can't, can't curse the Israelites. Please try again. No, I can't do it. No, please try again. No, I can't do it. And then finally, he drops all of his, like, his divinations, the Bible says. So I don't know if he's, like, throwing rocks on the ground or drawing with sticks. I don't know what he's doing. But he's, he drops all that and he prophesies to Balak about the Messiah and that these people will be God's people and he will keep them and actually that they will destroy him. It's not a, it's not a great scene. <laughs> and how did the Messiah do this? By taking the very nature of a servant. The least prideful thing you could do. All of the wealth and power and influence of the powers of this world are but pride in the face of the God of all justice. Look at the examples in our text today. The first ones are examples of pride. I need to, you need to trust me a little bit on this just because of time. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? These are not Levitical instructions. I, I thought they were. I started researching because I was like, I wonder when God instructs them to do this. These are above and beyond Levitical instructions. The classic example of a calf is a seven-day-old calf. If you are sacrificing a one-year-old calf, you are going way above and beyond. Way, way, way above and beyond. To sacrifice a thousand rams was never required. In fact, one ram was required to save Isaac. There's not really much mention of thousands of rivers of oil 
But you must admit that that's surely a boastful excess. Shall I bring you thousands of rivers of oil? And Yahweh never requested a human sacrifice. In fact, it set the Israelites apart from the Moabites who were sacrificing their children. In fact, it's actually one of the things, if you study slavery in the scripture, it's one of the, one of the things I've spent a lot of time doing, you will see a trajectory. Israel is different from everyone around them. Very different when it comes to slavery. So when people say to you, or historically people have argued slavery from the scripture, they don't have a really good understanding of the cultural context. Israel is way more advanced than the people around them when it comes to dealing with slaves. Way more advanced. In fact, I am firmly convinced that the trajectory is freedom. So if you want to know the biblical trajectory, it is freedom. So don't dare use the fact that there were slaves in the scripture to justify your perspective on historical slavery. In fact, even in our scripture right now, Micah says, what have I done for you? I have freed you and redeemed you from the house of slaves. Their instruction not to sacrifice children stood in stark contrast to their neighbors. And when they did take on the values of their neighbors, Yahweh was quick to rebuke them. Very quick to rebuke them. All of these examples are more than the biblical mandate and have the sense, particularly in the sacrifice example, of capitulating to the dominant narrative surrounding the Israelites. There is pride oozing out of each one of these excuses given by the people. And what does pride do? It leads to a false sense of justice. Justice by its very nature recognizes that we are all equal before the face of Almighty God. There is not one who is different, not one who is more valuable. That somehow, my life is worth more, that my comfort is worth more than someone else's life because I live in Guelph or Fergus or Ontario or I'm a white heterosexual or a cisgendered male is a direct affront to the cross of Christ and puts me in opposition to the walk of the God of the universe and represents the most heinous of all crimes against his kingdom, pride. This pride leads me to ignore or treat as inconsequential or merely just a sad reality of a fallen world injustices such as this. If you are black in Toronto, you represent 8.3% of the population, but 37% of police death by deadly force. That's not just. Whatever reasons there are behind that, that is not justice. You are also one of the largest targets of hate crime. 16% of all hate crime in Canada is directed at our black brothers and sisters. If you are indigenous in Winnipeg, you are only 10.6% of the population, but represent 67% of the death by police. There's a lot of reasons why. It doesn't matter what the reasons why are. That is unjust. If 
if you are an indigenous woman in Canada, you are six times more likely to be killed than a non-indigenous woman in Canada. Out of a thousand people in the world, 5.4 of them are victims of modern day slavery and 25% of those are children harvesting my chocolate, making my clothing, being forced to work as sex slaves. Half of all women in Canada have experienced at least one incident of physical or sexual violence since the age of 16. That is not just. Sixty-seven percent of Canadians say they have personally known at least one woman who has experienced physical or sexual abuse. Approximately every six days, a woman in Canada is killed by her intimate partner. Every six days in our country. That is not justice. On any given night in Canada, 3,491 women and 2,724 children sleep in shelters because it isn't safe at home. It's not safe at their home. That's not just. And on any given night, about 300 women and children are turned away because there's no room. On any night, if the church cannot find space for 300 women and children who are turned away because it's not safe at home, that's not justice. That isn't justice. That is not walking humbly with your God. I know there are lots of complications. I know there are lots of reasons why. And church, it is our job to figure them out. It's our job to figure out how to change that. And that's what Mike is saying. The question that he begins this section with is with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? We need to take a second and the band's gonna come but even just in the silence, I just wanna wait for a second because we need to respond to the Lord. We can't listen to that. I, I can't. I, I, I literally have been Working on this since Monday last, and I, I cry every time I think. I, I, I'm challenged every time I think. This cannot be that we listen and walk away and are not changed by the prophetic call of Micah from thousands of years ago. Because it is a clarion call to us to do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with God. Let's just close our eyes for a second. Amos 5 says, Away with the noise of your songs, but let justice flow like a mighty river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Lord, we're ashamed of these injustices. I'm ashamed of them. 
right at the very verse, it gives us a hint of how we leave this place of injustice. That we would put our hand into the hand of Almighty God and walk with him. We would see where he is. We would see the people that he is lifting up. We would recognize that they are us and we are them. That we are their keeper because he keeps us. Father, this morning, would you speak to our hearts? I don't even know what else to ask, God. It seems so overwhelming at some level. Jesus.
there's this sense that, at least I'm having, this sense that we want that you want to kind of make it okay. There's going to be, you know, it's going to be okay. And the truth is, it is going to be okay. Praise Jesus, it's going to be okay. He's going to find a spot for those 300 people. It's going to be okay. God is in the business of renewing all things. And yet there's also a sense that we can't just brush this away and pretend that he doesn't call us to be involved in this. And the only sense that I've got just as we end here is I just want to read you that section from Isaiah again because the reason that we can have strength, the reason we can hold each other up as we grapple with what it means to overcome these injustices is because of Jesus. It's because of his journey to the cross, that ultimate act of humility that overcomes injustice. So as the Lord's doing whatever he's doing in your heart and calling you to new things and giving you new ideas and challenging you to think about how we as the church address these issues, let's hear these words from Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers are silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, that was for you and me and for everyone, for all the victims of injustice. That's what puts us on a level playing field. It's what causes when we have pride rise up in us. No, I'm in the same boat. That iniquity is laid on him because of me. Father, would you burn that into our hearts this week? Jesus paid all, all Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow